Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemican.com podcast. Today we're going to talk about Ramon Lul. He's a really interesting figure. I, I probably say that every show, but, but this time I really mean it. But this is true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, was, he was actually, he was the first person uh, that I read about that actually inspired me to start taking notes on these kind of folks and write about them in basically what became the History of Alchemy website as kind of a way to say, man, you know, I wish I could kind of remember some of the stuff I'm reading because, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting, but it's not all science in, in the regards that we today consider science, but it's fascinating nonetheless. So this guy was kind of the inspiration that started everything. And, and when we talk about Ram Alul, he was, he was way ahead of his time in, in a lot of things. And one thing that struck me when reading about him was that he was a huge influence on great thinkers later on. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit, but but people like um, Leibniz, like Gottfried uh, von Leibniz, uh, who you know was one of the inventors of calculus, and he inve- he influenced Martin Luther for a very different reason. And there's just all these, um, you know, one thing that that struck me that is obvious to me now, but uh, that these medieval thinkers, there wasn't a huge boost in the Renaissance, like, like is often believed, and maybe there was an art and, and architecture, but not in science, not in, in philosophy per se. And it was much more gradual than people kind of realize. And Ramon Lull, to me, is just a great example of that. So, yeah, these great Renaissance and early modern and, uh, you know, these, these Enlightenment-era thinkers were inspired by these crazy folk like Ramon Lull. And uh, so he lived from 1232 to 1315. And in English, he's called all kinds of things like Raymond Lully, Raymond Lull, Raymundus, Raymundus. That would be the, the, the Latinized version, yeah, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you go from Raymond to, you know, um, uh, yeah, or even Lulius, you know, Latinized, Lulus, Lulius. Um, so he's from Mallorca. Party town. Which, yeah, it's, uh, I'll say that just the fact that he's from Mallorca, that has really raised my opinion of that horrible <laughs> island. I still, I'll... Bad experience there, Trev? <laughs> no, I'm never going to set foot on there. I just, I mean, I speak German, so I could, but uh, no, there's, it's just, yeah, I'll still probably never go there. Although I would love to see his birthplace. He's, he's famous there. I mean, there's, you know, there's universities named after him and everything, but... Not going to Mallorca. Not not going to happen. Uh, so he's a Franciscan tertiary, which means so is he's a member of the Third Order of Saint Francis. So they're not monks, which I didn't know much about this before I read about him either. But they live normal lives. They could marry and everything, but they're they're still related to the Franciscan order. And there's still today there's still around like two point five million members of Franciscan tertiaries. And, and I think one of the the, the things that separates them from other Monks of the Saint Saint Francis order is that they don't take that. Um, I don't believe they take that vow of poverty. 
right? Yeah, that so could be. That, that, that's yeah. probably another big. So they're associated choice. with the club, but they're right. not like they don't. They can marry. Yeah, I don't know. It's they. They don't live in a convent. You know, they're just they just signed up and they have the the ID card. I guess I. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> not sure how that works, <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, you know, to give you an idea about. Uh, some of these great ideas that uh, that that he came up with. You got to get, get an idea that that Remelul is a, a man of many different talents, and uh, in the science division of things, uh, he came up with the uh, computations theory, the elections theory, the concordant criterion, the uh, Borda count, to name a few. He's also honored as a Catholic martyr, so you know the end story is not probably all that awesome. Uh, he, he wrote what was known as the first European novel. Yeah. Right, so that's interesting sort of uh, epithet you can put on your gravestone. Um, and what are other things that make him pretty interesting would be the occult version of things that are going on with this. He wrote treatises on alchemy, one of one of the alchemists who supposedly found the philosopher's stone. We talked about this many, many times. Which yeah, and there's several alchemists that supposedly exactly. Found it. So yeah. who's who are you going to pick to say they really found it? Well, you know, in this in this sense, maybe Lowell did. Astrology, Hermeticism, the theory of the elements, uh, dignities of God. Uh, he was also influenced uh, by Neoplatonism, uh, Jewish Kabbalah. He also influenced people such as, as we talked about, uh, Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz. Uh, and, the, and what you had mentioned I thought really piqued my interest, Travis, a few seconds ago was talking about how he influenced Martin Luther. Yeah, okay. That, that seems like a strange bedfellow. Yeah, well, we'll get into – what he did that influenced him, but but basically um, he kind of he you know he wanted Jews, Muslims, and Christians to get along, and, and we'll we'll discuss about you know how he went about that later. But um, this what he did was you know based off of his works, Martin Luther later was inspired by this, and then wanted to kind of reconcile Catholics and Orthodox. This was before there was before the Reform- Reformation, but he just kind of thought that. You know, we both believe in the same Messiah even. So if Lul could tackle, you know, Jews and Muslims and try to reconcile them with, with Christianity, then surely it must not be that difficult to undo the Great Schism, right? We were talking about before the show that he really tried to bring these three different religions together that are Abrahamic, you know, concepts and really bring them all together. You know, we, we're still struggling that with today, aren't we, in a lot of ways? You yeah. Know, but he had the foresight back in the, the 13th century, to, to tackle those questions. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, because one thing is, um, he, so it's important that he was born in Mallorca for that reason. Because so, he was born in Palma, which is on Mallorca, and at that time it was the kingdom of, of Mallorca, which was just recently reconquered from Muslims. So it's important because there was a huge population of Muslims and, and Jews there on the island. And this, you know, so he was in constant contact with, you know, he, he had contact with the other other Abrahamic religions, if you will. But, okay, I mean, he didn't just write about religion or theology and, and that kind of thing. He he did a lot of, you know, again, we mentioned all these scientific kind of or, or you know, philosophical endeavors that he, he got involved in. And at one point, he actually became the tutor of James II of Aragorn and ended up marrying one of his relatives, and then he became the seneschal. It, it, anyways, it, what it is, is it's the administrative head of the royal household. So he kind of you know, took care of the, the local affairs. You know, one, one of the biggest parts of his life, Lowell was uh, made it into a um, religious conversion, and it was a pretty probably emotional thing that happened with him. But before going into this conversion, um, he was kind of a bard, a troubadour. He would compose songs and, 
and you know poetry and put these things in in into to lyrical uh, prose. And he was composing one of these songs when he looked over and he saw an image of Jesus hanging from the cross in midair. As you do, yeah. uh, you know. I mean, so if you can imagine <laughs> that, yeah, probably a pretty poignant moment for him to say, "Whoa, I, I think I'm seeing something that's going to point me into a different direction." Um, and from there, uh, that wouldn't be the last time he would see these visions. Uh, but it was enough for him to kind of push him towards to join to join that third order of St. Francis that we've mentioned, mm-hmm. right? So that kind yeah. of brought him into that. Now, the same order of St. Francis that can allow you to kind of still live a worldly life right. by marrying and maybe accumulating some funds, but um, uh, maybe not as strict. So not a monk per se. But exactly. That, so, yeah. But he was still kind of living the life like everyone else was living at the time, uh, but uh, definitely had that conversion moment. So, uh, you know, joining um, into this religious uh, lifestyle – uh, that really affected what he wrote about and what he questioned. Um, he would question why Jews, Muslims, and Christians did not get along better. Why? Because, as we just mentioned, they have this the common uh, issue of Abraham at the very beginning. There's a, there's a lot of common, commonalities here that we have. He encouraged religious debates with Jewish leaders, and he tried to get them to convert to Christianity in that way, not by the tip of the sword, mm-hmm. but by having a strong philosophical conversation on religio- religiosity. Right, so th- th- I think that's something I think we could probably can all learn at certain points uh, that you can't force certain things by the tip of a sword. Um, you know, to, to get an idea, he had there's a picture inspired by Lull of, of of a pagan or Gentile or Jew, Muslim or even a Christian, each sitting in a row underneath a tree. Right. Yeah. Uh, he tried to find common ground, a common root to, that that would bring people together, much like when you see a tree in a uh, um, in, in an ancestral chart, there's there's connecting things that connect us all together, and this is where he got into the work of the theory of elements. All three religions accepted the Aristotelian view of the elements: earth, air, fire, and water. Right. All right. This is the attempt to use the science of of the time to find common ground. Mm-hmm. So he's bringing the science into the religious aspect of the age-old sentiment is can't we just all get along, right? Yeah. But medieval style. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he, he tried his best to uh, really get along with the other, you know, the, the entirety of the population of Mallorca. Like, he, he pushed for Arabic education. There was a motive there. Like, he thought it would be easier to convert Muslims. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, he, he's, you know, he's got his wheelhouse, and his wheelhouse is Christianity. Yeah. and He wants to bring people, people to, yeah. to, to that idea. But... I mean, he wrote some of his works in Arabic, um, and then, yeah, like you said, he encouraged debates and all these things. So, but okay, so now you have he says, okay, we can all agree on science, right? Right. And here's where it gets interesting. So, <laughs> he tied the elements, earth, air, fire, water, with the dignities of God. Okay, because Jews, Muslims, and Christians would follow along with this. But the dignities of God, there's there's also like an equivalent in the Kabbalah. And um, uh, Ramon Lul also, we're going to talk about Christian Kabbalah in a different episode, but he laid the foundation for later Christian Kabbalists. And Christian Kabbalists is, Kabbalah, basically in a sentence, is um, using Kabbalist principles like numerology and, and that kind of thing. And then saying, but Kabbalah, through Kabbalah, that actually proves that if you look at the word Jesus, it proves that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore the Messiah. So, so he tries to bring them along logically to a certain point, and then says, "Ah, but if you be- if we all believe this, then you must also believe that Jesus is the Messiah." So, you know, that's that was kind of where the road was heading, and it's a lot of fun to read about. Um, so, okay, so you got the dignities of God, and this is where we come into computational 
theory. I know it doesn't sound like much of a segue. Uh, yeah, but, I almost but, fell asleep when you said that because. Um, but here's the yeah. thing. So, <laughs> you got your four elements. You got the the dignities of God. He would assign a letter to each dignity. Okay, and the dignities are something like you know good, virtue, virtue. I have them all listed on the website if you're interested. Just look up dignities of God, um, and then you arrange those letter on a wheel along with the zodiac, the planets, the elements. And the attributes of the elements, like moist, hot, you know, that kind of thing. And now when you turn the wheel, you get the makeup of all matter. See, when you mentioned computations, I was thinking you're going to drop some, some knowledge on us with some numerical issues. But this, this is actually pictograms we're using this, here, Yeah, right? this wheel that we're talking about is the History of Alchemy logo. Ah. That's it. The one you have on your website. That's, that's actually... This is the one. That is a computer that if you turn it the right way, you're like... Hey, what's uh, what's this wood? What, what what are what's the makeup of this wood? And you turn it, you say, okay, well, it's mostly earth. It's um, dry and whatever, dry and hot. It's going to give you okay. several computations. So yeah, for what and, your input, and it's, right? and it's like good a and virtuous or whatever. Uh, then you you know everything. Okay, it's it's element earth. It falls under this zodiac. It's this planet. It's you know this and this virtue of dignity of God, and um, it's all it's it's computerized. It's computational. Um, yeah, again, so, so the wheel is, is the logo, if you want to see it. Um, the dignities, everything is, is listed on my, on my podcast. I didn't want to just read it all out, but it is very interesting. Okay, so now the next step. You use that scientific foundation, and therefore, and you use that scientific foundation to prove that a trinity exists, that the divine is, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if that is true, then that means the sun is true, and therefore Jesus is true. And there you go. Now you have a scientific proof that Jesus exists, right? And I can I can In see right century. now that this this would splinter a lot of Christian communities because they had problems with understanding the Holy Trinity uh, of what that meant. You know, and some Orthodox churches went to different directions. So this this is very interesting in that sense. Yeah, it's. Trying your best to use logic to to kind of ratify, you know, to um, validate your your spiritual beliefs more or less. Now, Lil really didn't live in a vacuum. When we talk about, you know, he influenced many people. This is actually very true. Um, however, he had his folks that that influenced him, and his work was actually built around pseudo Dionysus and Saint Augustine, uh, mm-hmm. who we've talked about in previous other um, alchemy um, uh, podcasts. Uh, if this sounds Neoplatonic, well, you're right, it is. Uh, yep. The scientific foundation was later used by alchemists as the scientific backing for their work. Um, this is a sense of, of reproduce, re- reproductibility, uh, and it could be argued, and I will argue, that it is one of the tenets that had an influence on what we all know as a scientific method. Sure. Right? Uh, one could also argue that the system here of logic was the beginning of informational science, and his wheel was a, as we mentioned before, a proto-computer. Yeah. Very simplistic, but computer mm-hmm. nonetheless in a lot of ways. Uh, we, the history of alchemy would probably go even farther than that. Astrolabes uh, are way cooler and they're way older, yeah. and they have kind of the same sort of so he computer-like techniques. So he wasn't the first, but... but it okay. sounds good we'll on give, top of the show, right? We'll give him some credit. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Sure. All right. Uh, you know, the uh, the premise for combining simple things to do more complex ones was really – it was already taken up by Gottfried Leibniz in his uh, De Arte Combatoria mm-hmm. to combine things here. Um, but it wasn't Lowell's only influence. This is kind of interesting to see this. Another attempt was, was used uh, – uh, bar- he borrowed a philosophy 
uh, and proved uh, Christianity came from the Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. Now that that's going to be a little bit of a stretch for that's, some people to listen to yeah. in uh, the 13th century. Now, yeah, we're gonna we're we'll probably have to do an episode on Kabbalah here, and and because uh, I want to get into numerology because that that's also important for alchemy. And there are some Christian Kabbalists that were also alchemists. So um, just like you know, we'll we'll go into depth into astrology because it ties into alchemy in so many ways. That at some point we'll also we'll do an episode on on um, numerology in general and that kind of thing and, and break that down a little bit further. For now, just to kind of uh, get a get a glimpse of of what Ramon Lul, like what his his contribution was towards this whole movement, was that again, like I said, he used the Kabbalah to basically, you know, and and if you don't have no idea what the Kabbalah is. Um, you can assign a numeric value to the Hebrew alphabet, and then um, by you know you look at the words, and then you get a number. And some numbers are divine; some numbers mean something. And that's just oversimplifying it dramatically. But you know, so so it has you know you combine you attribute words with numbers, and then those mean something. So you can you can tell how divine a number, uh, how divine a word is by the number associated with it. Now, if I'm not wrong with this, I know in popular culture, especially back in the States, it was something that uh, a lot of uh, celebrities went into Jewish Kabbalah because there's this sense of, well, you know, like instead Madonna? of... Like Madonna? Yeah, I guess at the top of my mind, I'm thinking of her and a few other people in Hollywood that, that you know, really kind of gravitated towards this. It wasn't a feeling or a, a, a dictate of, of, of some kind of philosophy, religious philosophy, because... You actually had you had numbers. You could believe in numbers. You can believe in math to prove things. Yeah, and if you can combine it with a religious thought, you probably feel a little bit more confident about your religious, you know, uh, yeah. theories. Um, and I think it was natural for a lot of people, especially in pop culture, to gravitate to something like that. Yeah, but I mean, you know? when we do break down numerology, we won't just talk about Kabbalah because there's also like like was it Zazamos that has every letter had very very Zazamos of Panopolis? Yeah, yeah, that guy, that guy, All right. Which we mentioned like every show, right? I know, but but he had like a vi- you know every letter He's a rock something star for very us. specific, yeah. and he went way in depth into the alphabet and um, and then uh, like Pythagoras, which we won't do an episode on. Um, but again, there was like you know divinity and numbers and ge- geometry and all that kind of thing. Okay, so let's break down his system a little bit more. So you need this the ten separath, which are the names of God mentioned in the Bible. Okay, and this, again, has something to do, or, or he combined it with the dignities of God. So now we've got the Ten Separath, the dignities of God, and that was part of his unifying theory. And then you need the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? Now, stay with me. <laughs> so, I'm since, not lost yet. I'm not lost yet. <laughs> right. So since God created the world using Hebrew, right, contemplating Hebrew was both contemplating God and his creation. Because... Uh, according to the theory that when God said, let there be light, he spoke he- Hebraic words, right? So he created the world using Hebrew. So they ha- you have to use Hebrew to come down to the truth, right? And even in the New Testament, there's a couple of those words, especially when you mentioned the word God. Right. Uh, we might say Abba, you know, it's a very personal yeah. personal use of saying Father, you know, yeah. um, for these type of things for God. And that that... That was huge when that was mentioned. Yeah. So, so he, he, you know, uh, Hebrew is is a, um, a great foundation for this, this mm-hmm. information. Yeah, and the, like those ten separate, those are Hebrew names of God, right? So, okay. So, so far, so good. So now we got 
Lula's Kabbalah, which is, again, the basis of medieval Christian Kabbalah, okay, but but not the same thing. So he, he kind of built the foundation, but when we talk about Christian Kabbalah, we're, we're talking about this and more. I mean, it's kind of like Platonism versus Neoplatonism. There, there's more to it, but, you know, he definitely gave this some thought. Okay, now here's the thing. Lul used the Latin alphabet instead of Hebrew, but the idea of permutation of letters stays the same, but won't reveal the secrets hidden in the Old Testament, okay? And this is often different from later Christian Kabbalah because they would use the original Hebrew. So he deviated quite a bit, and, and some of his ideas weren't taken up by the later Christian Kabbalists, but the, but the aim was the same, which is to use the Kabbalah to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, meaning that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. So he could he would go to Jews and say, "Hey, but look, if you know if you believe A, B, and C, then D proves that Jesus is God." Okay, so um, yeah, that's uh, one of his more interesting theories. But he has he, there's another interesting aspect of him, which is um, part of his whole religious identity, right? And this actually led to his death and his martyrdom. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he did travel quite a bit, um, but that really didn't really light his fire. He was kind of bored with the, with that concept of just traveling to travel. So he really wanted to put more into it. And his first trip to Tunis was as a missionary, and he accepted a martyr's death as the outcome. He just got run out of town before that happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So yeah. if you can imagine the guy sitting there, he's preaching the word of God through a Christian lens – and uh, someone comes up to him and says, you know, you, you can't do this. This is Tunis, man. You can't do this here. We're, we're a Muslim country. This is – actually, people get killed for just saying half of what you just said. Yeah. We're, we're going to give you the chance to get out. Mm-hmm. And they did. So he left. Not the end of the story. Right. All right. He's like, you know, now I'm more apt to want to go back, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even if it means I get killed. So his second trip was more or less as, as, as a spy for the pope who was planning a crusade. Now – he didn't want a crusade because remember at the beginning of this podcast, Lull was more of the guy of, I can win people over to Christianity mm-hmm. by talking to them, by using this Kabbalah ideas, but basically just talking to them that we have by more. By using logic. We have more in common than we have right. separate from, from each other as a family, as a mm-hmm. human family, um, especially when we talk about monotheism with one God. So at this point, he was, a, 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 I don't want to call him a spy, but he was definitely picking up information for the Pope and hopefully going to try to change the Pope's mind. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so when he returned, he suggested uh, a prayer instead of swords, and, and um, that probably probably wasn't received too well, but, <laughs> you know, at the time, I think he did is, is just point. You know, when we talk about this, the first thing that comes to my mind, Travis, is St. Francis. You mm-hmm. know, when St. Francis of Assisi was alive, he did something very similar to this. Yeah. You know, and he would go and talk to, to the Moors and say, listen, you know, this is not what our religion's about. We're about peace. There's got to be some common ground here. And that's what Lull did here. All right. On his third trip to Tunis. So not learning his lesson. Not learning his lesson. Well, he's not done. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, at his thir- third trip, uh, he was already an old man at this mm-hmm. time, at this middle ages. I mean, he was uh, ancient because he was yeah. 82 years old. Yeah. All right. So this is in 1314, the year 1314. He's 82 years old. Raymond traveled again to North Africa, and an angry crowd of Muslims stoned him in the city of Buji. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, Gen- Genoese uh, merchants took him back to Ma- uh, Mallorca, uh, where he died uh, at the home uh, in Palma the very next year. So, it was a delayed death martyrdom, 
he was beat up pretty bad as an yeah. 82-year-old by being stoned, nearly stoned to death. Yeah, but uh, he clearly chose to be a martyr, and he's like, you know, I'm getting pretty old now. If I want to be this... Let's wrap it up. If I want to do this martyr <laughs> thing, I better get it done. No, that's you know? a gateway to past St. Peter at the pearly gates, so right. let's just wrap this thing up. But, you know, I, I do I do find there's, there's a level, some might look at it as craziness, like a death wish. There's probably some courage in there, too, as well, I think, because I think his end game was... You know, let's let's get people on the same page. Yeah, I, I you know, mean, with freedom of speech, let's get people on the yeah, same page. He, they can decide for themselves, right? And and in a nonviolent matter, I mean, he wanted to have discussions. Uh, one thing we didn't really go into, but he, you know, he would seek out rabbis and and uh, try to converse with them and, and discuss religion. You know, on you know, and and uh, that just that wasn't happening to a large extent at the time. It was more. Uh, you know, kicking Jews out of town and, you know, or, or killing them or, um, you know, making them lower class citizens in one way or another, taking away their rights. And he was like, no, let's, you know, let's, let's convert them. Let's, you know, and let's it, teach, the, let's do education in Arabic, um, even if it's only easier to convert them, that, that made life easier for those immigrants. A lot right? of people not today. immigrants, but those minorities. Right. And a lot of people today in the 21st century would be like, oh, that's, that's a big deal. We do, the, we do a little bit of this, you know, today. This is a big deal. This isn't like when the President of the United States has a prayer conference breakfast once a year where he invites yeah. rabbis from the Washington, D.C. area, Presbyterians, you know, Protestant faith, Catholics, uh, you know, imams, you know, you name yeah. it. Uh, and they all sit and they talk and they, they break bread together. That seems kind of like a common thing that can happen at a given moment in, in today's world. This did not happen. Not in the time of the no, Crusades. No, not at all yeah. because people were very polarized. So he was a trailblazer. Yeah. Um, okay. So so beyond that, uh, there was some stuff that was just recently rediscovered as far as like mathematics, statistics, classification. I mentioned election theory at the very beginning, or or you did, and um, there's there was a really interesting stuff that um, was recently found. Like for instance, in two thousand one, they discovered one of his kind of a lost manuscript that Lowell's given credit for. And so now he's just, he's given credit for discovering the board account and the Condorcet criterion, which you both mentioned. Right. And uh, Jean-Charles de Borda and Nicolas de Condorcet independently discovered centuries later. So if, if these manuscripts weren't lost or, or paid attention to more closely, then, uh, you know, Ramon Lowell might have been the discoverer. And, you know, this could have happened hundreds of years before that it was officially discovered, right? Now, both of these have to do with election theory. And uh, to really simplify it a lot, you just, you know, you can look up election theory on Wikipedia. But so a little, there's the terms, you can call them a little winner and a little loser are ideas and contemporary voting systems that are named in honor of lull. Okay. And, and it's, Again, it's kind of, you know, you're looking, looking at a population and you predict who's going to be elected based off of, you know, board account and, and Condorcet criterion and, you know, all kinds of statistics that go into it. But, you know, and of course we mentioned his computation work, right, the computation theory. But um, Gottfried Leibniz, Leibniz took this seriously and, got, and Leibniz is one of the people that independently, uh, dis, you know, invented, let's say, or came up with calculus. And the other person was Isaac, Isaac Newton, who actually we will do an episode on. I keep saying that, but it's happening, people. It's happening. In modern fiction, he's mentioned quite a bit, which we bring up every episode. And, and um, uh, there's, he's mentioned quite a bit. There's colleges named after him and, and all kinds of things. But what I'll mention really quick is uh, Neil Gaiman's comic book, Calliope, that, which is an issue of The Sandman. Ramon Lowell comes up, right? Really? Okay, so I'm familiar with The Sandman um, series. 
uh, somewhat, but I, I, I'm not familiar with the catalog. So maybe you just haven't. Maybe you just didn't know who Ramalul was. So you didn't. The name. It didn't might be stick. a combination of those factors, Travis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but I could definitely see when you talk about how you're drawn to this guy. He was an inspiration for you to maybe start the website and do a lot of these things. Um, he is kind of a, a jack of all trades. He's an amazing man, and the story, his story, is something that I think. Uh, uh, really fits well to this podcast. I think it's a good foundation for this podcast in a lot of ways uh, for for alchemy, uh, history of alchemy. And I think uh, um, you know, I think a lot of people probably have learned something from the show tonight. Yeah, if I have to say one thing about alchemy itself, because we didn't talk a bunch about alchemy here, but it was um, I think we briefly mentioned this, but uh, later alchemists could use Ramon Lull as an excuse to say that, look, it has a scientific foundation. It's not just, uh, you know, some spiritual meditating near your furnace. It's actually, you know, there's, there's some real, there's some real science here. And, uh, Lowell definitely wrote the treatises that they're referring to are ones that Lowell wrote. So, um, yeah, you got to bring back to alchemy somehow. Right. Right. Sure. It's a show. Um, yeah, today I'll mention one bibliography because I did take quite a bit of of this stuff and even inspiration from Francis Yates, The Occult Philosophy of the Elizabeth, Elizabethan Age. And that's really all about how um, science was happening in the quote-unquote Dark Ages, and there's no such thing as the Dark Ages. Really? So, there is no such thing. They never existed. Um, early Middle Ages flies and late antiquity flies but i do not accept dark ages as an answer this is good to know yeah it's good to know that does not fly on this do you say renaissance or renaissance that's another issue i have with this um i say renaissance renaissance (laughs) i say renaissance let's just agree to disagree (laughs) no damn it all right well that's all we had tonight folks so thanks a lot for listening thanks take care you've been listening to the history of alchemy podcast with travis dow and pete coleman For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com, or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page, or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast, all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.